Four races to go in MotoGP 2020, and after the first Aragon race, we've now got the eighth different winner of the season, because Alex Rins has taken glory for the very first time since Silverstone last year, with Suzuki's first win of this 2020 well, it's not even a season, it's a thrash, it's a showdown, it's a Hollywood thriller, isn't it? Alex Marquez has got back on the podium, and he nearly won it, but for a wobble on the penultimate lap. And here we are talking about a guy who hadn't even had a podium until the week before. And when he did get that the week before at a wet Le Mans, we all thought, ah, oh, well, it's just because it's wet. But here he's gone and done it in the dry. But... Juan Mir was third at Aragon, and cue the Jaws music, is now leading the championship by six points. For me, this is beyond a classic season. These are absolutely the good old days. And I say that because I always look back to 2006. 2006 MotoGP season, and with four races to go, Nicky Hayden had a 22-point lead. Before the end of the year, he'd lost that lead and then regained it at the very last race. And here we are with just six points, splitting Juan Mir and Fabio Quattararo with those four races remaining. Toby Moody and Simon Patterson here. Simon, I'm going to say it like I do every week. Eight winners in 10 Grand Prix. It just doesn't get any better, but it does. It does every week. That's the bizarre thing we've got at the minute. You think that it's all looking like, ah, oh, this could never be surpassed. We must be due a boring race. This one will be a little bit quiet. And then someone inevitably throws a spanner into the works. You know, yesterday it was Fabio Quattararo and Alex Marquez. The week before it was the Le Mans weather. The week before that, it was Valentino Rossi's crash. It just keeps going and going and going, doesn't it? Uh, where is this year going to end? Well, let's have a look at the top 11 in the championship and only one of them hasn't won a race and that's Jack Miller. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's 18 riders who can win the championship and out of them, something like 15 of them have been in the podium. Sorry, Taka Nakagami as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, you, you get yeah. my drift. My mistake. Apologies to uh, to the Japanese. But he's next up for a win. Yeah, he has to If be. he doesn't, well, that's the form book completely through. <laughs> It's trashed, isn't it? <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's kind of insane. But so, a hundred points left on the table, and a hundred points takes you back to including 18th position in the championship and Cal Crutchlow. Now, we all know that's just mathematical. But if we go back 34 points in the championship with a hundred still on the table, that still includes. Franco Morbidelli, Taka Nakagami, Andrea Davizioso, Maverick Vinales, Quattararo, and of course, Juan Mir at the top of the pile. Oh, somebody out. I think it's still going to be one of the top four. Mir, Quattararo, Vinales, and Davizioso. That's the maths in it. One of those four, one of them's going to have a big hit, a, a big non-score when it really matters. Whew. It still could be Davizioso, even after the mess that Ducati have been this year. It could be, but what we've seen, especially over, you know, once we had the first few completely mental rounds out of the way, what we've seen is we've kind of settled down into something approaching a little bit of normality or whatever the new normality is, is that everyone can still be inconsistent. Everyone still has patchy days. Fabio Quattararo has disasters 
Uh, Andrea De Vizioso has no shows. Alex Wren still likes a crash, but Juan Mir is always the guy who is just there, who is still consistent, who never puts a foot wrong too dramatically. And for me, I think what we saw yesterday with Cordero having a complete disaster in the race was the tipping point of the championship. I think we've now seen the championship slide just ever so slightly towards Mir for the first time. But it's just going to build up steam from there. If you look at Quattararo's championship year as a graph, he obviously started with two victories, so that the bar was really high. And then it went down into a valley. And then it started to come up again for Catalonia. And now it's going back down a valley as we come out of Aragon 1. It is absolutely a wavelength thing for uh, for Quattararo yeah. at the moment. Um, so... What happened to him yesterday? He 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 was at the front and he just went further and further back. So it took a lot of digging last night to try and get all the answers to this uh, after the race, because obviously the team aren't going to come out and say it. Uh, what I can gather is what he did wrong. He stuck in a medium tire for the race. He had not used the medium tire, medium front tire. Once all weekend, he had not left the garage on one until he left for the cycling lap. As a result, so I should say the, re the reason for that is because yesterday's race was probably the warmest that it has been in the three days that we've been here. The sun came out, the clouds went away, the wind dropped down, it warmed up a little bit. It's actually even warmer today in Aragon. Um, so hopefully that's a trend that continues through next weekend. But because of that, they had to go harder on the front tyre to make it last longer. They decided the soft wasn't the way to do, as did uh, his teammate Franco Morbidelli. But because he hadn't used the tyre all weekend, they had to guesstimate a tyre pressure. They had to take a stab in the dark of what amount of air to put into the tyre. They went too high with it. He started the race. For three laps, everything was hunky-dory because the tyre was working really well. And then as the air inside the tyre warmed up, the pressure increased and increased and increased and increased until he was riding around in a block of concrete and dropped through the field precipitously and did a really impressive job to actually stay on the bike if you talk to someone that's rode a bike with their front tyre pressure too high before. Wow. Yeah, that's that that's that's quite something. The other thing that was quite telling was after the warm-up when they were doing their practice start on the back straight and he looked across to the right-hand side of Vinales doing a practice start and he was looking at his tyre. What was going on there? I think that's just a bit of, of reading and understanding, seeing what you know they're all up to, checking out what uh, everyone else has decided to stick on for warm-up, although in the end it kind of became irrelevant then because the temperatures increased so much between warm-up and the race. Like uh, like they can do here in Aragon if it's a nice day, you know, it's cold mornings, we're in the desert, we're at a bit of altitude, you get cold mornings, cool nights, and then the temperature can creep up pretty quickly. And that's what went wrong. What went wrong. Of course, he was also possibly having a look at uh, Maverick's practice starts to see whether or not he was going to repeat his bizarre actions of Le Mans and switch off all the electronics again and see how that worked out for him. Um, in the end, Maverick decided that that was probably a rather stupid thing. He did Le Mans and switched them all back on again for the race yesterday. And in his media scrum last night, started his media scrum by making us all give him a round of applause for making an excellent start. So at least he could laugh about it. Yeah, he could, he could. How's Quattararo going to cope with the whole uphill and at the moment down Dale? 
Last night he was pretty upbeat. He was still pretty confident about everything, which is a promising sign. But we've seen this year a little bit that... So last year he was under zero pressure. He was he was fighting Mark Marquez for podiums and it came with no pressure whatsoever because he was a rookie, because, you know, it came naturally and he was having fun. This year, with the burden of having the championship leading his shoulders, that has changed a little bit, I think. He made some comments last night after the race trying to downplay it, trying to talk about how... All the pressure was on uh, the shoulders of the factory guys and he was only a satellite rider that no one expected to win the title, etc, etc, etc. But in my experience, riders generally don't even think about pressure until they're under it. So the fact that he was still thinking about that, the fact that he said that kind of implies that it is still there, you know? Yeah, because the pressure's been there since the beginning of the season, because he's been the one to be shot at, whereas... It's natural that a lot of people like to be the underdog, to chase, to follow, to to have something to to focus on. So yeah, interesting, interesting. That's it. You you win the open in two races of the year, and you put a target mm. in your back. I find it. I wasn't in the garage. I'm not the technical guru. I find it quite a risk to take a tire for the race that you haven't used all 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 weekend. It's it's yeah. a especially when it's a bit like sorry to interrupt. It's a bit like the damp race. Which way do you go? You go with your championship contenders. You don't take the exactly spin a coin, and you end up like Ralph Waldman at Assen in two thousand. And after two laps, you get it completely wrong. But the next week at Donington, you get it completely right. It is a flick of the coin. I remember a, a damp BSB race at Assen a few years ago where most of the grid started on slicks, but uh, Dan Linfoot put in wets. And for the first three laps of the race, he was 10 seconds clear. And he eventually had to retire because the rear tire shredded. And afterwards, he told me, I could have been a god, but I ended up looking like a dick. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, it's the Ralph Waldman at Donington in 2000. He was nearly that's lapped, it. but won the race. Yeah. You know, that's he was it. he was 17 seconds a lap quicker when it started to rain again. And I actually said on the commentary, the timing's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and on a slightly more serious point, just to pick up on something you said, all of his title rivals stuck with the soft. My point entirely. Vinales made the soft work, you know. Obviously, the Suzuki is a different bike. The Suzuki riders are different riders. But Vinales isn't so different. And he's on a bike that's identical. He made the soft tire work. Not for a podium in the end. Not for a, you know, not for a race win. But for good, solid points that closed down the gap to Vinales. And Quattararo, six points behind the championship leader. Six points, 10th place. And he got, yeah. he finished, but he finished out of the points. He didn't even get a dash on the championship table. He got a zero, which says you finished, but you didn't actually yeah. score. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, no. I'm not sure the last time I saw a championship contender get one of those without crashing. Yeah. I mean, the only person who crashed yesterday was Banyaya. Yeah. You know, normally whenever you see someone score a zero, it's because they've crashed and remounted. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. Hmm. So the pressure on him. He's got another Aragon, then two Valencias and a Portugal. Let's see how that one goes. Oh, dear. It, but then again, knowing what he's like, he can bounce back and go, ta-da, I'm back. 
my gut feeling is that there's every possibility he can. He's like he's like some pantomime sort of character, isn't he? Yeah. And and you know, he has the benefit of in his head knowing what went wrong yesterday, knowing what needs to be done to fix it, i.e., using a different tire. And if he's convinced himself that that's the only reason that things went wrong, he can come back here next week, go to a different tire, use the tire he's known, or work in the medium all weekend, and then go out and race as normal and win it. He's good at compartmentalizing problems. Doesn't get in a tiz. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he is excellent at it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and Vinales, you touched on him and that brilliant start that he made after a complete Horlicks the week before in France. You know, he flew like a god and then eventually just got caught just as they did the year before. That was sort of in the script and he probably knew that was going to happen. Yeah. But he's third in the championship, 12 points back, within touching distance, all doable. Mm. He, he spoke on Saturday night about taking a gamble in the race, about committing to the soft, soft tyres, going like hell off the line to see and how they lasted to see and how they managed to try and get some safe points and then to kind of regroup for weekend two and uh, you know come at it afresh with the knowledge from race one so um yeah i think he's not in a terrible position he will go stronger this weekend and uh you know he lost some points to me but he closed the gap to quadraro He's still within touching distance. Let's be honest, this is 2020. Anything can happen at any time. And suddenly you could be leading the championship again next weekend. All it takes is contact between two riders. Or, you know, it's it's so easy this year to make a mistake that the, the, the most important thing you can do is just always be within touching distance for now. Can you imagine? It's a flag to flag change your bike race at Porto Mayo. Or there's a there's a slightly more worrying option as well, though. <laughs> or there's the possibility that we get to Valencia and Portugal announces, you know what? We can't host a MotoGP race. The coronavirus situation is too bad, which is where they're creeping towards at the minute. This is the problem. We talked about this earlier in the year about, you know, not really knowing when the end of the championship is like we do in previous years. And that that threat has increased rather than got less we have mentioned it in podcasts before you get to this point in the season and you need to lead every sunday night mm -hmm. because you might it might be the end of the of the season as you say it's lead every lap because there's a big rain cloud coming they might put a red flag out yeah. uh, <laughs> in the old days the most important week of the 2020 season will be the week between aragon 2 and valencia 1 the week whenever everyone goes back home whenever people aren't in the paddock, whenever things are starting to get worse across Europe, as we've seen, where more restrictions might come into place. You know, it's harder to cancel a race whenever, whenever everyone's already there for the race. So that week for me, and, you know, it's another opportunity for everyone to go home and potentially catch something, as we saw this weekend. You're absolutely right. But the reason we're excited about these last four races is that it is unprecedented really in moto gp history to be this close with this many races remaining and dawna know that and they'll make that race happen come hell or high yeah. water it's entertainment it's hollywood it's <laughs> hollywood yeah they, they they will make valencia happen so i know that's a controversial thing to say against health but they look at it 
with commercial eyes, yes. shall I say. Yes. And let's be honest, the way that this year has shaped up a flag-to-flag race at one of the craziest circuits in the world to end the year and decide the championship is pretty much you know par for the course. It's in the script somewhere. <laughs> I'm going to make a yeah. wild sweeping prophecy now. If we have a flag-to-flag race in Portimao, someone will crash in pit lane because the amount of pressure and stress... The, I, I think the end of season I'm trying to think it through that's why I'm speaking slowly I think the end of season party if you know what I mean drinks at the <laughs> hotel drinks in the hospitality for whoever won't be very long because everybody mm-hmm. will be utterly mentally worn out just yeah. shattered yeah we won the chance either that or it'll be the best after party ever because the debauchery will just <laughs> people will switch off and go mental let's see <laughs> yeah but my goodness me, my goodness me. Uh, yeah, and you've got some characters in there. We can only dream about those things, but we can only dream about these last four races. And the good thing is we've got the next one this coming weekend. Uh, we're yeah. recording this on the Monday. We've got the next race this coming Sunday. Happy days, happy days. Um. Okay, so let's... Focus on Alex Marquez, <laughs> the invisible man all year. <laughs> what have Honda done to unlock something with this bike? What What do you think has happened? Or is it just a bit of a... Uh, Alex knows how to get round Aragon. The wet race in Le Mans suited him because it was a leveller. What's your take? I think there's there's probably a Honda factor and an Alex factor. The Honda factor is twofold. One, we know that they've been playing around with a new rear shock that seems to have made a big difference to the bike, big help to the bike. Um, Alex admitted yesterday, we asked him on Saturday if he was using it. He said, you know what, I'm not sure. We asked him again on Sunday if he was using it. And he said, oh man, I forgot to ask the team last night. I meant to ask them after you guys asked. (laughs) So he's not even sure if they're still got the bike and that's what's made the difference or not. But it seems to have. And then the other factor, the Alex factor for me is he got, I'm not going to say an easy ride in Le Mans, but we know how aggressive the Honda is. We know how hard to ride the Honda is. We know how physical the Honda is. What's the first thing you do in a wet race? You change electronic mapping and you take away all that power. And suddenly the bike became actually quite pleasant to ride, which is why he was able to put on a great performance, why he was able to ride to second. And how many times have we seen a rider has a good result, it boosts their confidence, and then the next week or the next day or the next hour, they go out and do it all over again. You know, I always mean it's a project for a winter night sometimes, sitting down and counting how many people have won their first World Superbike or British Superbike race ever on a Sunday morning and then won their second one on the Sunday evening by doing the double. Because it's a lot of people. You know, Never underestimate the psychological boost that comes from a good result. And I think that... Plus the fact that we're at Aragon, he knows this place like the back of his hand. Maybe he's got a little bit of his brother's, you know, special, weird left-hand circuit talent that played into his strengths. Um, But it all worked out and he put on a hell of a ride. I did see a Twitter conversation last night that made me laugh. Uh, someone someone theorizing that Alec, Alberto Pooch would be in pit lane screaming at Simon Crayfire, the pit lane reporter, next weekend. See, our bike does work. Our bike does work. And Simon replied to say, and yes, if he tells me that, my response will be, does it work at circuits that aren't Aragon, though? 
Very true. Yeah. They're not out the woods yet. They're not no, of the course not. Yet. One swallow does not make a summer. Uh, yeah, talking about Honda, you know, Crutchlow said he went off the line and the clutch was slipping yeah. and he tried to cool it down and by this time yeah. it was all clutch. gone. You know, he made a br- he made a brilliant start and then he just he actually w- lost a load of places in the second yeah. half of the run into the first so corner. He, he said the clutch started to slip on the side lap. He almost pitted to start from pit lane on the spare bike. But he didn't. And then the problem was he made a really good start whenever he dumped the clutch. But then the first gear change, he was just really cautious of it because he knew it was slipping, didn't want to overheat it off the line, went from third to 12th. And then after four or five laps, the clutch came back again a little bit. He was able to start picking his way through the field, but he just lost the front grip and and uh, wasn't able to make it work. He was pretty furious last night. He thought there was a podium there for the taking. So what about our championship leader, Juan Mir, Spanish with the Suzuki, an Italian team. Here he is, top of the pile, Mr. Cool, hasn't won a race yet. Last time we had a world champion not winning a race, I was there that day, was Argentina 1999 between Marco Melandri and Emilio Althamora. Um, Althamora won the championship, hadn't won a race all year. But you sort of go, ah, well, it's the junior class. Ah, you know, that could happen. And there's so many people. <laughs> oh, hang on a minute. MotoGP, how very dare you win the championship by not winning a race? That's not in the form book. Says on this piece of paper here, he's got more points than anybody else. <laughs> you know, Nicky Hayden won 2006 by only, if I could put that in inverted commas, winning two Grand Prix. But he just chipped away and he was always there. Um, he, he's already had two non-scores, first Spanish race, uh, first Hereth, should I say, and then, uh, Bruno. Yeah. So everybody else around yeah. him has had one non-score. He's had two and yet he's still leading the championship. Wow. So on form, that's it. It's given. It's a given that it's his, but we don't have form this year. It's all a bit up in the air. How are they going to cope with the pressure? Can they keep it together? What is Valencia like for the Suzuki? Who knows what anybody's going to go like at Portugal? Wow. I, I My gut feeling is they'll have another good weekend next weekend. Valencia will play to the strengths of their bike because, you know, we have to remember what Suzuki have kind of built right now is a Yamaha that's better. You know, it's a Yamaha that can go fast in a straight line but still go just as fast around fast corners and is still pretty good on the brakes. So we know that Valencia is a Yamaha track. We have every reason to believe that that means it will also be a Suzuki track this year. And I had quite a long chat with Suzuki test rider Silvan Gantoli at the test they did at Portimao. And let's just say he loves that bike on that track. And that's normally a fairly good indicator of how Mir in particular is going to go because Gintoli and Mir have quite a similar riding style except Selvan admits that Mir can just go harder, faster, deeper and he has no under, no understanding or idea why. Uh, so in theory, it's a good end of the season for Suzuki. Obviously, anything can go wrong this year. Anything can happen, as we well know. You know, worth noting, one of those DNFs for Mir wasn't even his own fault. It was Iker Lacona riding into him and taking him out. You know, that's just proof of that anything can happen. Maybe that means he's already had his bad luck of the year, but who knows? Do not underestimate Davide Brivio. He has 
been there, done that with everybody. And whether or not you like him or not, whether or not you agree, he knows the mistakes he's made. And that's what a team principle is about. It's not necessarily making the genius calls. It's not making too many bad calls. And he's seen... And every time you make a bad call, you learn from it. Exactly. And he's seen over time that, oh, bad call, bad call. Right, don't do that, don't do that. And when the kids come in and they're 20 years old and they know what they're doing and their manager's kicking the place around, no, we're doing it like this. That's that's what Sterling Moss always used to say about Alfred Neubauer, who ran Mercedes post-war, Formula One, uh, the the Grand Prix cars. He said he'd get out his little notebook and say... Oh, yes, yes, yes. We tried that eight years ago. It didn't work. <laughs> I'll never forget Moss saying that. And and But Brevio's got that notebook in his head. Yeah. And he, he is a manoeuvrer. He is savvy. We know as journalists, sometimes you might ask him what day it is and he'll struggle to confirm that to you. <laughs> but, but here and now... The 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 wolfish grin and the and the sharp teeth are there because he's employed to win the championship and up and down that pit lane. There's not many other people that I'd want as a team principal here and now. What he's done in Suzuki since since they came back for me is remarkable because what he's managed to do. You you look at their big rivals. Honda are a Japanese team. Yamaha are a Japanese team. Ducati are a European Italian team. Their management styles reflect that, all three teams. What Brivio has done is actually managed to merge his Italian background, Suzuki's Japanese engineering, and make some sort of a weird European-Japanese hybrid that works. As far as I'm concerned, no one else has really done that. He takes the best from both. He takes the strengths from both. And it is a large factor in, you know, it means that they have Japanese levels of reliability and machinery development, but it means they've got Italian levels of risking hiring kids in Moto2 that haven't really done anything. And, oh, look, one mirror's leading the championship for us. Yeah, I, I, I can see what you're saying. If I could be devil's advocate, you know, Lynn Jarvis, Hard Lorenzo from 250, uh, HRC, they've had, they had Livio in and he was a sacrificial lamb at the end of the day. But at the time he was employed to do one thing and it worked Win the championship with Casey. Yeah. With Casey. Um, yeah. Fair. So I see what you're saying, but don't be too hard on Honda and Yamaha. No, no, I agree. But, but the undercurrent of that has always been Japan calls the shots at the end of the day. Whereas with Brivio, you get the impression that it's very much a partnership. Yes. Yes. He runs the management. They supply the engineering. Exactly. Yes, I'd put it that way. Yes, yes, I'd agree with you on that one. But yeah, he's a he's a he's a, he's a clever bloke for what you need right now at Suzuki. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And with with less resources and a smaller crew, you know, a very lean setup compared to the rivals, but they make it work. Totally, totally. Whereas, and you touched on it at Ducati, they had their whatever they had on Saturday. Petrucci towing around Dovi, that Dovi towing around Petrucci. Dovi didn't get the favour back. Petrucci got through Q one into Q. Dovi throwing his gloves around, having a complete paddy, complete tantrum, and yet Davizioso. And I noticed this before Steve said it on the commentary. Davizioso finished wherever he finished yesterday. Uh, let me get it on the screen. Uh, seventh and closes in on the championship leader. It's insane, isn't it? 
I, I wish I knew what was going on in Jakarta at the minute. It, it's quite telling that, uh, so you know David uh, Taudatsi as well as I do. He's a friendly guy. He's always willing to talk to journalists. He's always good for a quote. I've been trying to catch up with him for an interview for about three weeks now, and it keeps getting delayed or put off or postponed. That to me is quite telling about what's going on inside the camp about you know the fact that they don't even want to talk about the situation i've heard all sorts of rumors about huge bus stops and fights and arguments through all of that patrici and dove have been sort of in the other side you know in the same corner as each other or at least corners next to each other not in the same corner as the management but yeah obviously saturday something went horribly wrong it sounds like patrici was just riding for Petrucci and no one had told him that he wasn't supposed to and that's you know it's it's not that he set out to purposely get in Dovi's way or it's not that the team told him to help Dovi and he ignored it he just he raced for him which is what racers are paid to do but uh yeah it kind of all backfired didn't it it did and Petrucci said according to one of the Italian websites you know oh well they got rid of me at the beginning of the year. They don't want me. It 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 is it is yeah. the MotoGP Sacked version before the season started. It is it is it is the MotoGP version of divorce. I don't want to yeah. live with you. I don't like you. But we've got to yeah. live in the same house for another year. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. That's and, it. It's exactly. And he's it. going. Do you know what? They don't love me anymore. Um, and although I've got a couple of mates in the garage, because you do. Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. the person who pays my bills and sort of agrees my marriage doesn't want me anymore. So I'm going to do my own exactly. thing. Exactly. And they're, if they're, I use the last of the milk in the fridge, I'm not going to bother replacing it. Screw it. You can change the toilet roll. Yeah. And 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 they're all on bonuses for getting through and front rows and pole exactly. positions and podiums and wins and championships. And they, they're big bonuses because they're a massive carrot yes. for people and money motivates, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And he's done his own thing. Whereas another thing that I read was, oh, well, we had an agreement and Dovi would do this and Petrucci would do that. And I got a bit confused. But From what I can gather, there was no agreement. Uh, or at least Danilo Petrucci didn't think there was an agreement. And he's not the sort And to... it's very difficult to ask Petrucci to do an agreement exactly. when they've just told exactly. him to leave. Yeah. At the end of the day, it was Dovi's decision to leave Ducati. That situation is different, regardless of what the reasons for it were. But Petrucci was sacked before the season even started. You can't blame the guy for, for fighting for himself now. Yeah, quite bizarre. Quite bizarre. But they could still win the championship. And nobody would begrudge them in a funny sort of way because... I th I think you like me wouldn't mind if Dovi won the championship because I don't think he's not a bad guy. It's his only chance because the Mears and Co have got more years on board, and it would be a massive. T I just think the the scenario and the story would be quite good. I have so just to even just to make it even better, um, someone asked Dovi the question at the weekend. So from what I understand for regarding his plans for next year. Sounds like there is a, a plan in the pipeline, maybe even a contract in the table, if not signed yet, that will see him joining Danny Pedroza as a KTM test rider. And he, because Danny has no interest in racing motorbikes, just riding them really fast, it will then be Dovi who gets the wildcard appearances that KTM are allowed. It will be Dovi who steps in as the replacement rider. And if he wins the championship this year, has to be a test rider next year and gets the chance to come back as a wild card, he will run the number one <laughs> plate. Hmm. 
Hmm. <laughs> I think there's a limit on the number of wild cards you can do because that was imposed in 2017 Three. because uh, at KTM we wanted to put in Mika quite a lot. Yeah. And we we just signed him up, signed him up, signed him up. Yeah. And somebody went, oh no 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 no, you can't do that. That that's under that's through the back door. It was uh, it was six for KTM until Miguel Oliveira won in Austria, and they lost the concessions. Now it's three. Yeah, but of course we've seen Michele Piro riding ten races in a season on four different Ducatis. If you're the replacement rider as well as the te- wildcard test rider, there's always you never know what's going to happen. You, to you can always move around. You can always move around. Um, can you imagine the can you imagine the mayhem it would cause if uh, something unfortunate happened to Nilo Petrucci next year and he was replaced temporarily by Andrea De Vizioso with a number one plate on the bike? <laughs> the twenty twenty season continues. Indeed. <laughs> Talking about turning things on their head, what happened to KTM this this weekend? They've done more miles than the space shuttle around that place. I well, think they must have accidentally packed the 2017 bikes. Hmm. It's just, it's proof again that if things don't work for KTM, they really, really don't work. Uh, what we've seen is that the bike doesn't like cold conditions. Whenever the temperature drops a little bit out of the optimal, they kind of when it's dry. With it. When it's when dry. It's dry. It when works it's dry. in the damp yeah. and it works in yes. the wet. Yeah. Yes, but in the dry, it, it doesn't really take the benefit from it. Yeah, I think that's what we saw. They were lost for words yesterday after the race um paul espagaro had his own issues within the race then that kind of made his position even worse so any chance of a good result um that he would have had disappeared um kind of uh ironically given paul's love of calling out other riders for making contact with him and ruining in his day he didn't really want to talk last night about how he ran into danilo patricia and ruined both the races yesterday but um, so be it. Uh, so I think I think that was the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and any chance of a good result for any of them yesterday. I didn't see what happened with the qualifying thing between him and his brother and Marquez. Uh, yeah, I I was surprised there wasn't a penalty handed Alex Marquez's way for that, to be honest. Um, Alex was cruising down the back straight. You can see in the camera he's, you know, like, 100 kilometers an hour slower sitting up waiting for Maverick admitted that he was waiting for Maverick on the side of the back straight he goes into the last corner wide because he's on a slow lap Aleish comes into the corner on a hot lap with Paul towing him gets a little bit wrong runs a little bit wide suddenly Alex is in front of him he sits up because he has nothing else to do Paul runs into the back of him so the, the reason that Alex didn't get a penalty was because he was cruising off the racing line, not on it. But for me, given what we've seen in Moto3 and given the fact that Moto3 riders won't stop doing it, there needs to be an example set from above. And I think Marquez should have been penalised for that. The penalisation that needs to happen to Moto3, I've said it for years, years and years when I was in the hire car with Julian. Just ban them. Just, just take them out for the race. Take the points away. Uh, yeah. Take the opportunity yeah. of a bonus and take the opportunity of the start money away from the team. It is the only yeah. way to penetrate their minds. Agreed. But there you go. Um, yeah, we have riders this weekend who have now been penalised four times in nine races. I don't think they're getting the hint, do you? If that happened in the real world, that you caught, you got caught speeding... How many four times, four, yeah. four times in, in yeah in nine races, um yeah yeah yeah, and and you know the the current penalty 
doesn't work because the current penalty is taking time away from them in sessions. Well, that's irrelevant whenever we're doing back-to-back races at the same track. Who cares about losing... What happened to points on your no, license? The, the licenses went away after uh, the Valentino rossi Sapang incident, remember? We don't have penalty points anymore, which is just insane. Like, that needs to be step one. Bring back the penalty points. You know, the guys got fined. So a fourth offence this weekend for seven or eight riders was losing 25 minutes of FP3. How important really is that whenever, apart from going to Q2 directly... How important for that is that whenever we've just had, you know, three days of track activity here? How unimportant is Saturday morning practice at quarter to nine, nine o'clock when it's freezing cold? Exactly. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'm sure. I've got a lump of sugar for my hobby horse. <laughs> I'm sure that there's riders next weekend who will manage a time in FP2 good enough to go directly to Q2. And then will happily sit in at the, at the end of FP3 whenever they're banned, put their feet up, chill out, save a bit of engine life. Three crashes on the trot for Valentino Rossi and then the news came through on Thursday before Aragon that he'd got COVID-19. How he got it doesn't matter, but people are popping back home. They're not sort of enjoying the sights between Le Mans and Aragon and then kicking around Aragon for a week. More people than we realise are maybe disappearing home, are they? I would say from what I've heard, most people, most riders are going home between races. The rules say that if you want to leave the country between rounds, you have to provide a justified reason for why you're doing so. From what I can gather, a justified reason for wanting to go home is I want to go home. And, you know, you're increasing the risks. Tony Arbolino caught didn't even catch coronavirus. He was sat next to someone or sat two rows behind someone on a flight who tested positive, which under Italian rules means he has to be isolated. But the flight was from Le Mans back to Italy because he was going home for a couple of days between Italy and, or between Le Mans and uh, Aragon. If he'd done what a lot of people did, jumped in the hire car, jumped in his van, drove straight to Aragon, would he have caught it? Would he have missed this weekend? Would he have ended his championship hopes? Probably not, no. So the rules have been laxly enforced. They've been paid lip service to. And unfortunately, the first person to get really caught out by it was the biggest name in motorcycle racing. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, Sergio Perez had it in Formula One. Um, Jorge Martin had it in Moto2 and then ends up on the podium again uh, yesterday. So, yeah. yes, it is. But I think the difference in those two cases is that they were, they both caught it on weeks off in between races. They didn't catch it between back-to-back races when the rules say you should be within the MotoGP bubble, even if the races are in two different circuits and you have to do a little bit of traveling between them. That, to me, is the bit that has been paid lip service to and that has caught people out now, both Arbolino and Rossi. Mm -hmm. Yes, if I was... uh... If I was a works rider earning that kind of money, I'd have a very nice hotel and a very nice hire car or get somebody to drive my car from wherever it is around Europe to Aragon. It's a lovely part of the world, very lovely part of the world. Go and do some sightseeing and just disappear for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Exactly. A, A lot of the guys have gone home this weekend, even after what happened, Rossi. But 
The big benefit to going home this weekend is they all live in Andorra. It's three hours drive away. They drove their own cars here. They're going back home to stay in their own houses for three days and then they'll drive back again. So there's no, no flights. That's fine. That's yeah, fine. Exactly. Yeah. The yeah. risk is flying. It's airports. Yeah. The car it's... is a bubble. Exactly. Literally. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there we were on Thursday before this race. Oh, you know, well, there's a Yamaha free and Lorenzo's the test rider, but that test that he did at Puerto Mayo didn't even work the bike. You know, it wasn't, what did Neil Spaulding say? At that lack of pace, you're not actually finding the foibles of the bike. You're not learning anything when you're three, four seconds off the pace. It wasn't really going to be something that could have happened uh, because there's a 10-day gap where you are where you are allowed not to fill the bike that covers the next two Grand Prix yeah. because they notified them on Friday morning, not the Thursday morning. So he's got to get better for the first Valencia, or they're going to have to put somebody else on that bike. I think I think it'll be the former, and then they'll carry on. Yeah, he's got a week off before Valencia. He's um well on the road to recovery he'll be out of any lockdown quarantine measures by then so he should be back for valencia the the lorenzo situation i think is just it's a bit chicken and egg really he's not bike fit because yamaha haven't wanted him to ride the bike and now yamaha don't want him to ride the bike because he's not bike fit you know they've had all season to have him out on the bike testing which arguably they should have been doing in case at any point they needed a replacement rider if for no other reason but instead, what they did is wait until a week before it turns out they actually needed him to let him ride a bike for the first time since February. And he was slow because he hasn't rode a bike since February. And if he comes back, he'd have to use Valentino's engines, which, as we know, could be getting yeah. tight. All the Yamaha engines getting tight between now and the last race at Puerto Mayo. So it just saves a few kilometers for Valentino. Uh, one scenario that Spalders did say was, if you put a test rider on, uh, he and I were talking about it on the phone, actually. If you put a test rider on, they do, they, they just about qualify. They do two laps in the race. They pull in. Uh, but more importantly, you put a sixth engine through them. Yeah. That's got another 600 revs and another 15 exactly. horsepower. <laughs> and it's built to spec following the knowledge of what went wrong at the hot Hereth races. Exactly. And the fairy tale might be that Valentino would win a couple of the last Grand Prix, but that's a big ask. But I can see the technical thinking behind it. <laughs> yeah, there's an argument for it, isn't there? But can you imagine, no, Jorge, we only want you to do two laps. We want you to take one no. for the team, sacrifice yourself for Valentino Rossi. Nah. <laughs> no, you, you, you'd put a Folger on it. You'd put a, yeah. you'd put a somebody else on it. You'd put a somebody. Um, and the other thing that I, I'm sorry... Uh, it may sound unprofessional, but I'm tired of it. The Ian Oni thing. Can you please explain in three sentences, in three sentences only, why we are still waiting to hear <laughs> what I think we all know we're going to hear? Okay, three sentences. <laughs> Go. Last Thursday, Ian Oni had his final appeal heard at the Court of Arbitration for Sport, where he's looking to have his ban his 18-month doping ban revoked completely and the World Anti-Doping Association is looking to have it extended to four years. As sentence one. They have announced that it'll be a month before we get our conclusion to it, at least uh, probably around a month. 
which is not unrealistic because they heard 11 or 12 hours of testimony from a lot of scientific experts. And when you read a court of arbitration for sport report on something like this, it's not a quick thrown together document. What we eventually get will be 30 or 40 pages long with a complete timeline and a full explanation of every single thing that has happened through the entire case. So that's why it's going to take so long. It's two. And sentence three. No one I've spoken to realistically believes that Ian O'Neill's appeal will be repealed or that his appeal will be accepted because he hasn't, from what we've heard, presented anywhere near the amount of evidence that other people have be, have presented in similar cases. And if anything, there is a strong prospect that his sentence will be extended because some of the circumstances around the particular the drug that he used are rather suspect. Ongoing, isn't it? It is. It's ongoing and it's 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 just not good for anybody. And it's a shame. It's a shame because somebody needs that ride and a brilliant need another rider. Whomever it may be. Probably a crutch a, a crutch low. So uh, so yeah. From from what I've heard it's not quite as clear cut that it'll be a crutch low anymore. Mm. Well yeah. Cal's Cal's not a patient man. He's not someone that likes to be kept waiting especially for somebody that he considers a, a drug cheat and from what i've heard the guy that's on the bike right now could well be the favorite to keep it next year one mr bradley mm, smith there we go there we go there we go good well there we go uh <laughs> um <laughs> Another day, another drama. <laughs> another weekend, another Grand Prix, another drama. Uh, but most of all, it's entertainment. I'm glued to it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Couldn't be any Ten better. Ten down, four to go in 2020. Keep in touch with our Twitter accounts at We Are The Race, at Toby Moody, at Denkmit for Simon. Our next MotoGP podcast will be next week right after the second Aragon race. Do like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from and give us a review. That'll be great to hear what you've got to say. Thank you for joining us. But remember, this is a classic season. So make sure you go out of your way to watch these remaining four MotoGP races. Another Aragon, two Valencias and Portomayo. It's going to be beyond a cracker. Goodbye for now. Hold up. 